Father, we come to you once again and we thank you for this morning. We thank you that it's another morning where we get to experience your grace and mercy and kindness in our life. We thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself and that we have peace. We thank you for the church family that you have blessed us with. <clears throat> and we thank you for your words of life that continue to sustain us. And now we just ask, would you open our eyes? So behold the wonderful truth of your word. Would you magnify your son so that we, by beholding him, may be transformed into the same image for one degree of glory to another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so as you can tell, somewhere in the last couple days I lost my voice and hopefully we'll be able to make it through the sermon this morning. But thank God for the common grace of hot tea and lemon and honey, which apparently is the best remedy for a coarse voice. <clears throat> so for the past seven years, our family has been traveling on points. And this began when I was in seminary. And one of my neighbors, whom you all know very well, Alexei Dolotov, came up to me in the backyard that we shared together and said, Dennis, did you know that you could put your regular spend on different credit cards and get points and travel for free? And I looked right at him and said, tell me another fairy tale, please. <laughs> there is no way that you're able just to put your regular spend on cards and then travel for nearly free. Well, a little less than a year later, we were going on our first trip to Hawaii. Our flights and our car rental were free and we stayed in our friend's home for eight nights, all on points. And then we started an annual trip to Lake Tahoe every single year during Christmas time, all on points. And then we realized that Anna and I can get away for one night, which is what the one of my professors recommended once you have two kids, you need a one night a month getaway so that you can keep your sanity and so that you can grow in your romance and your intimacy with your spouse, not only physically, but also emotionally. And so I went on Hyatt.com, <clears throat> I looked up some hotels in Carmel and found a very wonderful hotel called Carmel Valley Ranch. It was a hotel that was situated on a golf course, it had a little bit of a vineyard and natural lavender fields. And <clears throat> this was the first time that I learned what truffle, truffle fries were. <laughs> we got into a room, it was a big king bed, we had a tub on the deck outside, views of rolling hills, Everything was connected next to a central power system, which I never knew uh, existed because we, we were living currently in a place that was built in the 40s. And then I decided to make some evening tea. I turned the tea kettle on, waited for the water to brew, pulled out the bag, let it steep, and took my first sip. And the flavor of this tea was better than anything that I had yet tasted. Chamomile with notes of hyssop, lemon myrtle, rose petal, and linden flowers. And this is where my relationship and our family's relationship with Stephen Smith Tea Maker began. You see, my whole life I drew up drinking Lipton tea or any variety of black teas, but never had I tried an herbal tea that was so awesome. And let me tell you, when you try something of great quality, it is so hard to go back to that which is lesser quality. When you try something that is so amazing, it is so, go, so hard to go back to the old way. 
It is undesirable, and you never even want it. And let me tell you, you just elevate your life and never look back. <laughs> and it is different for everyone here. <clears throat> for some, it's a car that you got. Others, a makeup brand that you tried. A kitchen appliance that made your life so much better. A coffee brand. Or a phone as you upgraded from Android to iPhone. But there is one place where it is the same for all of us, and that is the gospel. We never move away from the gospel for, number one, there is no other gospel. And secondly, when we taste the sweet gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing better. There is no way you will move away from it once you truly understand what it is. And this is what the Apostle Paul is calling the church at Colossae to this morning in our just simple three verses that we have, verses 21, 22, and 23. He is calling the church of Colossae to remain in the gospel of reconciliation, to not move or deviate from it because there is nothing better than the gospel. Last week we heard that Christ is enough. He is supreme in creation. He is supreme in the church and his salvation is enough. He made peace by the blood of his cross. And Paul is continuing this idea. He finishes speaking of the glories of Christ. And then he also ties it in with the problem at Colossae. They were in danger of moving away from this glorious reconciliation that we find here in verse 20. The glorious Christ, in whom all fullness of God was pleased to dwell, to substitutes for the gospel or additions. They were downgrading, we would say, from Stephen Smith teammakers back to Lipton. The only God-man who could solve their greatest need of being right with God. The only promised seed, Christ, who was the culmination of the crimson thread of the Old Testament. The only acceptable lamb without spot and blemish who is accepted before the Father. This is the one they were in danger of moving away from. The only one who could bring him to God. The only one who fulfilled the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the Noahic, and the Mosaic covenant and the the new covenant, the true and final prophet, priest, and king. You see, religion was calling their name again. Religion was saying, it's all about your performance and not Christ's performance. Asceticism was saying, you'll get closer to God by taking away certain pleasures of life. But Paul keeps reiterating the same fact and idea, that as you have begun to walk in Christ, continue in him. And we see that if you open with me in chapter 2, verse 6, I want to highlight this idea. It's one of the central ideas and the central text of the book of Colossians is verses 6 through 9 of chapter 2. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught. There's only one pathway to walk in life, and that is the pathway of the gospel, the finished work of Christ, that makes peace, and friends, this morning it continues to give us peace in our life, does it not? That quenches the wrath of the Father and continues to do so. That makes us right, and now we continue to stand right. That unlocks the riches of heaven, and today we have access to those riches in heaven in Christ. That satisfies the wandering heart as we sang earlier, and this was not even connected. I didn't know we were going to sing that song, but that wandering heart he satisfies, and he continues to satisfy he cleanses the sinner and he equips the saint. And so Paul is saying, do not move away from this glorious hope. Do not move to a lesser thing from something that is so much greater in 
your life. Remain in the gospel of reconciliation. And there are two ways that the Apostle Paul is teaching us to do that. And the very first one is this. Remember your hope. We find out in verses 21 to 22. Remember your hope. So if you're thinking about the proposition and it's not on the screen, it is remain in the gospel of reconciliation. That's your fill in the blank. And the first point is this. Remember your hope. Let's take the first two words of our passage in verse 21. And you. Paul is highlighting something about the past of the believers at Colossae. And in relation to the redemption story, he is highlighting as well those of us who are part of God's salvation that's ongoing and working, something about us, something about our past. Who were we before Christ? It's very important for us to remember where we came from. All of worship begins with remembrance. If there's a lack of worship in our life, it is because there's a lack of remembering. We forget God's goodness and greatness, meaning his person and his work. It always begins with remembering, and Paul is reminding the believers at Colossae, and he's saying, and you, and look at the next word, who once were, bringing them back to think about who they were before Christ came into their life. I think all of us know people who change, people who grew up next to us as neighbors in our neighborhood. We went to the same school with them, and then all of a sudden, we see them five or ten years later. And they became successful, they accomplished something in their life, and they forgot their roots. They're different. They achieved something on their own, and now they feel like they are above those who are around them. Paul is saying, don't forget that anything that you achieve now is because you were resurrected then. And so, who were we before Christ when Paul says to remember your hope? The first thing is that we were excluded people. He's reminding the believers at Colossae, they were excluded. We see that here with the word alienated. Who once were alienated. Meaning they had no part. There were were no part of the people uh, at Colossae, a lot of them being Gentiles, in God's plan of salvation. The initial plan of salvation that God has created. The Gentiles were then grafted into God's plan of salvation. The idea of being excluded is this idea that you can remember, if you still remember as a kid, when you weren't chosen to play on the playground. Or you weren't chosen to play jump rope or foursquare in elementary school. You were excluded. You were, you were not chosen. You were set apart. You were on the outside looking in. And these Gentiles in Colossae were estranged from God, separated from the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 as I read. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This is Paul writing to to the Gentiles at Ephesus, and this is who he's saying they were. Commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope. Why? Because there was no promised Messiah coming your way to save you from your sins and reconcile you to the Father. Israel looked for a hope in the promised Messiah, 
the seed of Genesis chapter 3, who would find its culmination in Galatians 3. The one through whom not only will Israel be blessed, but all the nations would be blessed. The gods that the Gentiles worshipped were false gods, and their religious rituals could not take care of their sin or their guilt. And so they were excluded people, Paul is saying. Secondly, we see here they're hostile in mind. They were also hostile people. Hostile is to be an enemy. And we see different descriptions in the New Testament of an enemy. We have death as our enemy, the devil as our enemy. What does it mean to be an enemy of someone or something? It means that you're fighting on the wrong side. Not only are you in the wrong, but that which you are doing degrades, tears down, and does not build up. You are not doing the will of God. You're not part of God's side. You're not on God's team. Therefore, you are an enemy. And so look at the source of the hostility or the location where it's at. They're hostile, and specifically, Paul highlights in mind. There's a couple of verses that I want to look at that highlight the same idea. Romans 1, the idea that knowledge and the mind is where it all begins. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And in Romans 8, the same idea. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's interesting. Where does hostility begin? You know, when we think about society at large, we would say, well, the hostility is in their actions. Look how they are rebelling against the way that God designed marriage, against the way that God has designed parenting, at the way that God has designed family in general and society as a whole. They are rebelling against the values and the ways that God has designed. But that rebellion did not begin with action. The rebellion began in the mind. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Why? For it does not submit to God's law. And indeed, it cannot submit to God's law unless there is a resurrection of the soul happening, new life happening. Unbelievers do not submit to God's law. Unbelievers submit to their own law, the law that they have created, for they are king of their own lives. And they live as they please. So why would they submit to a God somewhere who has rules and authority over their life? The mind is where hostility begins, but it doesn't end there. It leads to acts. Inaccurate thoughts about God produce ungodly conduct. There's so many things that are happening in the world today, and we would say California is getting crazier by the year. Apparently, now your children can be taken away if you do not agree with the gender that they choose. Friends, things have been crazy all along. Throughout all of history, when we read Corinth and Romans and the things that were going on in there, it's not much different than that which is happening today. People who are hostile, enemies of God, without God, will always choose evil, and that evil is going to lead to corruption. Thoughts lead to action. So if you have a thought that life does not begin in the womb, it leads to abortion. You believe that marriage is not sacred, then you have physical intimacy before marriage. Children can choose their gender based on their feelings. That's a belief and a thought. Well, now we have transgender procedures. 
This is why when we speak of biblical repentance, repentance is a change of the mind. Meta noeo. Meta, to turn, noeo, the mind. It's a churning of the mind. It's a turning of the thoughts and the way that I perceive life and the way that I view God. And so the effect of the hostile mind we see here, they're hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's just a natural consequence. Now what's wonderful here that Paul is highlighting is that who we were. And you who once... This word, little word once can also be translated as formerly. You were formerly this, but you're not that today. It's one little word that I would say is pretty amazing. It's a little word that speaks of our past, but not of our present. It's a word that speaks of us as when we were enemies of God, but now we are sons and daughters of the king. It's a little word that reminds us where we came from but also reminds us of where we are now today. This is us formerly, but it is not us today. Friends, do we dwell on this? Do we remember where God has taken us from? Do we look around this world and say, how evil are the people of this world? How sinful are they? Not remembering that we were the same enemies of God, without hope and without life until Christ entered onto the scene. This is what brings us here. This is what Paul is highlighting in verse 22. He brings us to this kind of culmination and a punchline. He front loads the description. You were alienated, hostile mind, doing evil deeds. That's who you were. And guess what God did in your life? Verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You were not searching for God. <clears throat> you were doing it my way like the song by Frank Sinatra, but God. Those are probably the two most wonderful words in the New Testament. We see them in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. We're dead in our trespasses and sin, enemies of God, but God. But God. We're going on a wrong path, but God stepped in. We're enemies of God, but God made us his children. And here, the same way, he has now reconciled it is not we who are reconciling ourselves to God. It is God who reconciled us to himself. It is in the passive voice. We're just experiencing this reconciliation. He is the one who searched us out. You weren't this before. Look in verse 20. Chris preached for us last week. Look at the ending of what Christ has accomplished. And through him, what's the purpose? To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, reconcile, to restore. Where there was once brokenness, now there's healing. You see, the fall broke everything. <clears throat> Number one, it broke the relationship between God and man. Secondly, it broke relationships between people, specifically siblings, Abel and Cain. Thirdly, it broke relationships in marriage, one man and one woman, Already as early as just a few chapters after Genesis 2, we see polygamy. But Christ reconciling to himself all things. Everything that was ever broken, Christ is restoring. And this is the redemptive story that we are all a part of. 
It's to restore to the original. That's the idea of reconcile. It's to restore to the original. Now, some of us love to do this. Maybe your spouse calls you the fixer-upper. You just love to fix everything, even if it doesn't need to be fixed. No, it needs to be fixed. My wife reminds me that not everything is in my control, and I can't fix everything. And I keep telling her, yes, I can fix everything. Just give me some time. We love to restore. We love to make new And this is part of the reason why we enjoy watching home restoration TV shows, car restoration videos on YouTube. It's fascinating to see something brought back to its original form from where it was. It is exciting to see what is being done, whether to a car or to a house or to an artifact that was found, it is being restored. Friends, in the same way God looks upon his people, and finds joy in seeing us restored into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. In the same way, God finds joy, our Father, as we are walking in greater obedience to him. Many of us have also experienced the broken screen phenomena. You take your phone, you use it maybe in the ways that you should, it falls down, there's an accident, and all of a sudden you're trying to hit the app and it's not opening. It's hard to scroll on Safari It's hard to make it out to Instagram and Facebook. We spend sometimes a little bit too much of our time. And then you go into the store or you go to the mall and the screen is restored and voila, it is made new. And then you can use your phone like it was created to be used. And so Christ, he reconciles us by the power of God the Father And the fruit of that is new values, new motivations, and outlooks. God the Father, once again, is doing this. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Now, we are the recipients of this. And just, I want to highlight how amazing this really is. There's a movie that came out a couple years ago. Maybe some of you watched it. Maybe some of you have not. The movie is called Sabina. It is a movie of the life of Sabina and Richard Warmbrand. And if you don't know those names, you might know the the title of the books called Voice of the Martyrs. And there are multiple series of these. Well, Richard and Sabina Warmbrand were a Romanian couple that lived in World War II during Holocaust. Richard had a German name, and so he went under the radar. And they helped Jews escape. But not only that, they helped German soldiers come to faith in Jesus Christ. Of all the people that you would think were enemies, these would be the greatest enemies. And there's a scene in the movie that just moved me beyond measure because it is such a picture of the gospel of reconciliation. Richard and Sabina would always befriend their neighbors wherever they were at so that they could share the gospel with them. They would bring them bread and jam, dropping off whatever goods might be of need to the new family that moved in. And during one of these encounters, Richard knocks on a door, the door opens up, and there before him stands a German soldier. As Richard gets talking with him, he asks him where he's from, and he just came from the city where Sabina's family was murdered. 
He was proud of what he had done. He didn't care for life at all. But Richard kept visiting him, playing music on the piano. And one day Richard revealed that he was a Jew and the soldier got very perplexed. Richard then went on to ask him, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Of course, the soldier did not, and Richard said, my wife Sabina is now sleeping in the room behind that door. I will wake her up and tell her that the man who murdered her family is here, and she will get up and ask you if you would like some tea and food to eat. Do you believe that? Richard then goes to wake up Sabina. She comes out, asks this German soldier if he would like some tea and food, and hugs the soldier, and he breaks down in tears. How could she forgive a man that murdered her family and brought so much pain? Because she experienced the reconciliation of God the Father through her Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a picture of what God does to us. We murdered his son, the only begotten, blameless lamb of God, And God comes in, steps in, and he receives us. And not only that, he gives us blessing beyond measure. Our status was enemies, our acts was evil deeds, yet the Father embraces us. Now, how specifically did the Father accomplish this? As we look at this verse, he reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We know that it was by the death of Christ. But couldn't there have been another way? It could have been a million lambs. It could have been simply mercy, but it was the one and only perfect lamb of God. As Romans 8.32 says, that because Christ was so precious in the Father's eyes, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things if he already gave us his most precious? He had to be one who was blameless. He had to bear, secondly, why he had to be God-man? He had to bear the full weight of sin. And so how did he reconcile? Here we see two descriptions in his body of flesh. This is a reference to the fact that he was fully man because there was this belief going around at the time of the church of Colossae called Gnosticism that matter is evil and the spirit is good. So the one who had died on the cross was not fully human. He couldn't have been. It was just like an image of a person. But it wasn't truly Christ, not a real human body. Reconciliation involves physical sacrifice. So it was by Christ's physical body that this happened. And secondly, by his death, the idea that he truly died because there's other heresies that stated that Christ did not truly and fully die, that he was still alive. And so Paul's phrase through death emphasizes the reality and the totality of the sacrifice. The death of Christ is necessary to the gospel of as to the resurrection and the question becomes what is the ultimate purpose of christ reconciling us to himself or christ reconciling us we see these three little words in order to this is a purpose statement that we find in the middle of verse 22 what is the purpose what is the ultimate goal of god the father reconciling us through the son to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The purpose of reconciliation is personal holiness. God does not make peace with us so that we can continue to be rebels and disobey. 
He reconciled us to himself so that we may share his life and we may share his holiness. This is what we also read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us so that we may be holy. This is why he predestined us to adoption, that we might become like his son, Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29. See, the most important thing in our Christian lives is not how we look in our own sight. It's not how we look in the sight of others. It's how we look in God's sight. And the way that God sees us is we are holy, blameless, and above reproach. And I ask myself the question, Paul, why do we need three different words for the same idea? You know when a preacher wants to say, say the same thing over and over again, he's saying it, and you're like, okay, I heard you the first time. Well, did you really hear me? <laughs> did you really understand what I was trying to get across? And so Paul is giving us three words that highlight the same idea, holy, blameless, above reproach. Same idea, three different illustrations. Holy, you're set apart. Blameless and above reproach is this idea that no one can hang an accusation on you. It's the same word that's used of uh, descriptions of a pastor, that they should be above reproach. What does it mean? That his coat hanger has no hooks. You cannot hang anything, any kind of accusation on him because there are no hooks that exist. And so when we are above reproach, that means that because of what Christ has done, God the Father has no more accusations about our life. Did you just hear what I said? Isn't that amazing? In this past week, how many times did we sin? In this past week, how many times did we disobey God or get in a conflict with our spouse or our children or think a negative or evil thought? And yet we hear today that God has no accusations to hang on us because of what Christ has done? Above reproach before him. This is why we sing the songs, the glories of Calvary. It is so amazing what Christ has accomplished. And it is before him. It is before the throne of the Father. And so, first thing is we must remember our hope. We must remember our hope. Where did we come from? Who were we before Christ entered into our life? And specifically, why is Paul highlighting this again and again? To remind them that they are not to deviate to any other truth, because there is no truth. There's only one gospel, and that is the gospel of Christ. Second, what we see in our text is we must persevere in that hope. Persevere in that hope. And this is where we get the word remain in the proposition remain in the gospel reconciliation. Remain here in the ESV is translated if indeed you continue. It can also be translated as persevere. And it's translated as remain, so I choose remain. So we persevere in hope. The hope of the gospel means the blessed hope of the Lord's return. That's the hope when he comes back for his bride. Paul already mentioned, look with me in verse 5. I want you to see it for yourself. In verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And later on, look in verse 27 with me. It is also the hope of glory. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is in Christ you, Christ in you. What is Christ in us? The hope of glory. The hope that we will be with him in glory. See, in the past they were reconciled. In the future, Paul expected purity. In the present, they were to continue in that. 
until the day of the Lord. Now, there's a little word here that sounds like a conditional statement to us in English. In verse 23, if we believe in a perseverance of the saints, we might come to verse 23 and ask ourselves the question, wait, this is a conditional clause. If indeed you continue, is there a way that you can fall away from the faith and not continue to persevere? What is Paul saying here? Well, he also wrote in Romans 11, and I want you to see it on the screen here, where there's the same idea. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God kindness to you, provided you continue in this kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Hebrews 3 verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. Interesting. I suppose we must do something for our salvation based on these passages. But it's very interesting if we look in verse in Hebrews first, and you see that in verse 6 it says, we are his house. We are. We were in the past his house. We are currently his house if indeed we hold fast. <clears throat> so we are something, and then we're going to hold fast. In, verse, in our verse here, we are reconciled to God if indeed we continue. So there's a, different types of conditional statements, and we're not going to go too depth into English, right? because this is not an English class we're preaching, we're learning. But here's an idea. Assume that A is true, then B must be true. Okay, let me give you a couple examples. If I give my kids ice cream, they will love me more. We assume A is true. I give my kids ice cream. They're going to love me more. If I go to college for four years, that's point A. Then B, I will get a bachelor's degree. This is called a first-class conditional statement. So we can translate verse 23 with assuming that you continue, not if indeed. Assuming you continue in the faith. And so based off of grammar, we can see that this is the idea here. Second reason is because of theology. Paul has taught that those who are made of the Lord, who are born again, will persevere and continue. They will not fall away. Personal commitments at conversion naturally produces a lifelong commitment to Jesus. And so one writer named O'Brien says this, If it is true that the saints will persevere to the end, then it is equally true that the saints must persevere to the end. And the reason why is because God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So we continue in the faith, and we will continue in the faith because in the past we were reconciled. In the future we have this hope and this glory. Therefore, in the present, we keep moving forward. We're all on a marathon. At a mile marker 23... We do not deviate and turn off. And if we do, we hop back on the path and keep going. That's the idea that Paul says here. There's going to be signs like asceticism that's going to say, buffet the body, you get closer to Jesus. Religion that's going to say, do things and you'll be more accepted before the Father. Paths that will try to deviate us from the main path of the gospel. And if it happens on mile marker 23, the true believer will get back on the path and run until they reach the finish line at the 26th mile. 
you continue, you persevere. And the definition of this is an activity to continue in an activity or state to persist and to persevere. In Romans 6, not to continue in sin. Romans 11, not to continue in unbelief. But in Timothy, we read to continue in the truth, to continue in public reading of Scripture. This is what we do. It's a present tense, ongoing thing. We persevere through false teachings and deviations. But how do you persevere? And once again, this is the hope and the strong foundation that we have. How do we persevere? You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting. Three ways. Stable, steadfast, not shifting. To bring us to the history of where Colossae was at, geographically, it was a city that was known and a region that was known for having a lot of earthquakes. And so, just like the Bay Area. And so what Paul is doing, he is using terminology like stable, steadfast, not shifting to remind the believers at Colossae who experience earthquakes that their foundation should be firm on Jesus Christ and that they will not deviate. They will be stable and steadfast and not shifting because because of the foundation that they have in Christ. This is what Paul is telling them. If you are truly saved and built on a solid foundation, Jesus Christ, then you will continue in the faith and nothing will move you. You have heard the gospel and trusted Jesus Christ, and he has saved you. What an image and what an illustration even for us. Did you know that in 2023 you'd be sitting in a church and that the letter to the Colossians would be just as relevant to you as to them? There are thousands of earthquakes every day. We had one in 89. We had one in the 20s, don't ask me which year. We are not, we are prone to them. And we understand that the way that buildings are built in San Francisco nowadays must withstand earthquakes because of the firm and solid foundation. Or if they are not, they're going to be like the Millennial Tower that didn't really make it to the bedrock and now it's leaning and people who put in millions of dollars in real estate are unhappy. Paul is telling them, that Christ is the only solid and sure foundation. And if you have put your hope in Him, if you are now reconciled, and now you're no longer enemies, but you are children of God, then stand firm in that and don't think that you need anything else because any other foundation, as we sing, is sinking sand. Do not move. Paul continues to elaborate, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That you heard, Colossians. Remember, you heard this. I wasn't there. I wasn't part of the church that started this. I wasn't part of the committee or the team that planted the church. But you heard the gospel that came probably from Ephesus. And it's a gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So not as not was only was it a gospel that was heard, and now you're hearing other things like mysticism and ritualism and asceticism, which are not a gospel, but it's a gospel that has been proclaimed to you, that has been preached and heralded and said, here's the good news. Listen up, everybody. I have brought good news. But not only that, it's a gospel that binds, Paul says, 
It is of this gospel of which I, Paul, became a minister. What a wonderful job. You know, there are three things in our life that make us content and satisfied with our jobs. Think of it in three circles. Number one, we would be really happy with our jobs if we got paid well. Many of us are probably there. Secondly, it's something that we are really good at. So whether you are in finances, whether you are a nurse, you're really good at what you do, you get paid well. The last circle, though, that makes the completeness in life is this idea that it is something that satisfies you or you enjoy. It's the wonderful triad. If you get all three of them, you're going to be the happiest person according to society today. Many of us only fulfill two of the three. We really love doing something, but we don't always get paid well to do it. And so Paul has this employment by the greatest employer who is Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if he loves what he's doing, but he writes in other letters that he does, but I mean beaten many times with rods, being shipwrecked, (laughs) being in constant hunger and in jail. I don't know if he's satisfied. But we read that he learned to be content. Second thing, he is always bearing the weight of the church, but bearing the weight of the church and doing the work of God is what brings him comfort and peace, clarity and purpose in his life. And let me tell you, he wasn't getting paid well. He was building tents on the side at night. Yet, what we see here is that Paul is sharing with the church of Colossae that God has called them into this. It is one of the greatest truths and realities that anyone could ever proclaim. And because they have heard the gospel, their life has been changed. And Paul says, of which I, of this gospel, which of the gospel I, Paul, became a minister. Not because I decided to do it, but because God called me to himself. And next week we'll hear of Paul's ministry and what that ministry looked like. So we're not saved by continuing in the faith, but we continue in the faith and thus prove that we are saved. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, church, remain in the gospel of reconciliation. You have probably up until this point been listening to the sermons through 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 the book of Colossians, through the epistle, through this letter, and you're wondering, well, I don't deal with Gnosticism. I don't deal with mysticism. I don't deal with religion. I'm here at Gateway. We proclaim the gospel, and we, we share that every single Sunday that we come up to announce and say, we're all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no religion here. Yet, I think this book we might overlook. There's many different ways that we can tend to lean on other things outside of the gospel to fully satisfy us and complete us. And I think this past Sunday at home group, as we were discussing, maybe you might have thought of some of those. And I want to challenge you this afternoon as you're going home. What are things in your life, if you were to write down a list, what are things in your life that you go to as an additional foundation? Things that you go to in your life as an additional crutch when life gets hard? Things that you're prone to go to, whether that's knowledge, whether that is people, whether that is something else for you to be content and satisfied and feel complete in your life. 
Paul is reminding us that the only time you will ever be complete is in Christ. For he is the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, you have been filled with him. Therefore, you have no lack. And so when Satan tempts you and says, deviate, go away from Christ, you remember and you remind yourselves that just as you began this race with Christ, you continue and he will sustain you in this race. I want to close with Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, a passage that many of us know by memory. But this passage reads this, because there was another group of people who were tempted to deviate from Christ and actually tempted to deviate fully from the gospel. And it was the believers that the author of Hebrews is writing to. And he tells them, there are three places that you need to look for you to press on. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, you look to those who went before you, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, so you look to yourself and that which is hindering you from walking, any weight, any religion, asceticism, mysticism, things outside of Christ, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here we are, we're running. We're not putting on cloaks. We're not putting on jackets. We're taking everything off so that we can run the race with Christ by our side. And this is the third place you need to look. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so, remain in the gospel reconciliation. Remember your hope and persevere in hope. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your words of life. We thank you for the gospel. Oh, how sweet it is. You have reconciled us to yourself by the blood of your Son. You have made us new. We are a new creation today. We were your enemies, but now you have made us your children. We have peace with you. Not only that, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is at our disposal because of what you have done, Christ, in our life. And we praise you and we thank you for that. Lord, we this morning ask for forgiveness for the times when we deviate fully from you, when we do not always trust you, that you are enough for us. When we think it's going to be just one more thing that's going to make us complete or content in life, Remind us that it is you and you alone, that we already have a firm foundation. And as as the things of this world seem to shake all around us, that that hope that we have in Christ is enough for us. We pray for your help and your guidance. We pray this for your glory and for our joy. Amen.